evidence and answers. Are Mormons Christian? What does the average Mormon think about this question? What are the differences between Mormonism and Christianity? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, our host, Pat Zucran, will be interviewing Dr. Corey Miller, and they will be discussing his story of growing up in the Mormon church to finding the Jesus of the Bible. If you've missed any portion of this broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, on to today's broadcast. You start to find some big problems. You know, and so this is where Christians need to ask their Mormon friends questions like, is Christ the Son of God? Well, yes. Is he God the Son? Hmm. What do you mean by God? Is Christ God? Has Christ always been God? Is God supreme? How can God be supreme unless he's always been supreme? How could he suddenly become supreme? On your view, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't God be steps behind his own heavenly Father and other gods who are likewise eternally progressing forever, precluding him from being supreme? We start asking questions like this, Pat, and we start to realize, that, and the Mormon starts to realize, that these are two different beings. You know, sometimes I'll preface that with an illustration, and I'll say, hey, Tom, let's say that's my Mormon friend, Tom, do you, do you have a mom? He says, yes. And I say, oh, my goodness, Tom, no way. I have a mom. I wonder if we're brothers. And he laughs, and I say, can you spell that? Well, yeah, M-O-M. I spell it that way. Can you spell it backwards? M-O-M. I spell it that way. We must be brothers. Well, how do you distinguish whether or not we have the same mom? You start to describe the characteristics of those moms. You soon come to find out that they are not the same mother in the same way just because we call it G-O-D or J-E-S-U-S. And Webster's Dictionary says you're a Christian if you believe in J-E-S-U-S. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. You may not even be praying to the same entity. And if one entity is infinitely different from another, then surely if the one entity is true, then the other one is completely false. It's like shooting air balls in basketball, meaning at least the hoop exists there. Here the hoop doesn't even exist. So the Mormon concept of Jesus is that Jesus is God now, and on a simplistic view, he was man before, and he was in the pre-existence, and then a pre-existent piece of spirit matter. But in reality, if you push them and you say, is he eternal? Yes. Was he eternally God? I mean, that gets into some deep reflection that most Mormons, 99.9% .9 will never have even thought of. But the answer to it is yes, we all have this divine spark. It's a matter of degree. There are not two species, Pat, in, in the sense of uh, differences. There are two different kinds, you know, a divine kind and a human kind. This is a, a spectrum as a matter of degree, not difference in kind, only difference in degree. And so the Mormon Jesus had at one point a more emphatic humanity and now has a more emphatic divinity. And that's why I say that earlier on in the process, he was a divinized humanity, and now he's a humanized divinity. You and I right now are divinized humanity. If we play our cards right, at some point we'll cross the threshold where we are then humanized divinity. 
And that's that law of eternal progression. Maybe we won't cross that threshold like Jesus did. But Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jesus was given physical birth by sexual relations with God and one of his daughters, Mary. That certainly is not the virgin birth. Jesus came to be God or emphatically God at one time. Jesus became perfect. These things are not what biblical Christians have ever believed. The Mormon Jesus is not the same. And so on the front cover of the Book of Mormon, it says another testament of Jesus Christ. But it really is not true. It's a testament of another Jesus Christ. Yes, you know, in one of their standard books that most Mormons read, Gospel Principles, page 9, it says, every person who was ever born on earth was our spirit brother or sister in heaven. The first spirit born to our heavenly parents was Jesus Christ. And so it kind of reinforces what you're saying there. In essence, we're the same thing as God the Father and Jesus Christ. They just made their exaltation unto Godhood and are progressing now. And we are on our journey here. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? They have a very interesting teaching on who or what the Holy Spirit is. Yeah, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. Well, at least some passages say so. But then again, push come to shove, understanding the Mormon worldview, it's a material world. Everything in this world is matter. Matter is eternal in a Mormon cosmology. That includes angels and gods. And so there's, there's some confusion on that. But we, as a Mormon, you're taught that you worship God the Father in the name of Jesus his Son and by the power of the Holy Ghost. But the Holy Ghost is one that, in some passages, once again, you've got to remember that if you get five different Mormons, you get six different opinions, right? <laughs> that's a good way to put it, yeah. And that's the case even if you get five different Mormon prophets. And so a lot of this stuff isn't clear because it's oftentimes contradictory. As I said before, the Mormon concept of God is not found in the Book of Mormon. It seems to be contrary to it. But in this regard, the Holy Spirit is typically construed as something that is not embodied, at least not in the same way, but it is a, a critical part of our relationship to the tritheism, the three-godism of the Trinity, according to Mormonism. And it is part of my salvation experience. I believe, I repent, I get baptized, and then I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. And I come to know that Mormonism is true by a personal revelation from the Holy Ghost, that it's true, and that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, and that Joseph Smith is the prophet of God. So the Holy Spirit plays a critical role in the process of the Mormon experience, but a whole lot less is known about that entity than Jesus or the Father. Yes, you know, and, and that's a tough one, maybe try to explain it for us. I mean, James Talmadge in the Articles of Faith stated that we affirm that to deny the materiality of God's person is to deny God, for a thing without parts has no whole and an immaterial body cannot exist. And so, you know, it's taught that God must have a physical form, must have a body. And yet later on in the Articles of Faith, James Talmadge says, the Holy Ghost is not tabernacled in a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Yet we know that that spirit has manifested himself in the form of a man. So the Holy Spirit is not tabernacled in a body, yet he has attained exaltation unto Godhood. How do they put that together? Do you know? <laughs> no, 
I don't know. <laughs> and if you ask the Mormon prophet, he would probably say the same thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty tough one there. When you talk to Mormons, they say, we believe in the Trinity, just like you Christians. We believe in the Trinity. But as you're explaining here, their Trinity is different from the biblical Trinity. So could you just kind of summarize that for us, uh, uh, how we could explain the differences between the Mormon Trinity and the biblical Trinity? Yeah, the biblical Trinity is one being and three persons, one nature and three, or one what, and three who's, right? So there's no logical contradiction. It's not that you have three equals one, because the, the who's and the what are a different sense. So there's no logical contradiction, but it is difficult to comprehend, and, and the Christian must admit that, like the physicist who cannot comprehend the nature of light. Is it a wave or a particle? They don't know. But that doesn't stop the physicist from knowing that light is real. We can apprehend the Trinity. We can believe in its rational coherence, because the Bible teaches that there is only one God, and yet in various places it teaches that there are three persons who each have the qualities of the supreme being so what follows from that logically is not a contradiction it follows that the three persons are the one god and we call that the triunity or the trinity the mormon concept of the trinity once again is that these are three separate persons but three separate entirely separated gods who have each launched out in their own existence and progress. It's convoluted. It is inexplicable. There's not a lot of attempt to try to explain these things in Mormonism, because once again, the knowledge you get is by revelation, and beyond that, you don't really speculate, and you don't really care, because it's not as if Mormon people aren't smart. They are. I mean, look at, look at the fact that right now in the United States, 2% of the people might be Mormon, but 6% of the senators are Mormon. In the recent Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination process, four of the 21 senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee were Mormon. We have Mormons running for president all the time. These are smart people. These are, are good citizens. These are producing people. But when it comes to religion and religious knowledge, things go a bit different. They're not really concerned with the logic of theology as much as they are the pragmatism of the religion, its psychology and its sociology. That's a great points you make about their theology, uh, Corey, here. And what about their doctrine of salvation? Once again, it deviates from the biblical message of the gospel. Tell us about their salvation message. Yeah, and once again, it's salvation messages, or the Mormon concepts, plural, of salvation. So when I was growing up, I remember hearing this little pithy aphorism, try, try your best, and God will make up the rest. And it's the idea that as long as you are trying, then you're going to be okay. And again, there are multiple degrees of glory in heaven, celestial, the highest, terrestrial, and celestial. And most people will go to one of the three. You always want to aim for the highest, but you're still going to be in heaven even if you're in the lowest of the kingdoms. And few people are going to be in outer darkness, hell. But the concept of salvation growing up is that, you know, you're trying to be a good person, you're trying to follow the commandments, but 
you're not realizing that there is a contradiction, or if you are, somehow you're suppressing that. And so let me give you an illustration of how I dealt with it. When I was eight years old, that's the age you're supposed to be baptized as a Mormon. When I was eight years old, I was told that when I get baptized, it's going to wash away my sins. Baptism is essential for salvation for Mormonism, and baptism by the proper priesthood as well. And when they're washed away, it's like I've got this blank slate. And I questioned at that time, well, if I want to get to celestial glory, the highest heaven, and be with the Heavenly Father, whom I love, and I, I've you know, missed having an earthly father, I've got to play my cards right. But I can't have a black mark on my blank slate and get in, because the Book of Mormon says that no unclean thing can enter. And so I figured, okay, what I would do is I would beat the system, and I would wait and get baptized when I was 88 years old instead on my deathbed, and I would have that blank slate. But then over the next year, I wrestled with this, thinking, well, what happens if I'm out and about someday and I, I get hit by a semi-truck and killed? Well, having failed to be baptized by the proper priestly authority when I knew I should have done so, that's not good. And so in fear, I finally capitulated and got baptized at nine. So I knew on the one hand that if you try, try your best, God will make up the rest. But on the other hand, I also knew something about the Book of Mormon seemed to indicate that it was very stern, that there was a job to be done and a deadline by which to do it. And so when you start to read through the Book of Mormon a, a bit more closely, in the same way that you don't find the concept of gods, plural, who are you know, starting as man and becoming gods, you don't find this idea that there are second chances in the afterlife, especially for the one who knows better, the Mormon. You don't find this idea that if you try, try your best, God will make up the rest. What you find is that there is a job to be done, and it is to keep all the commands all the time, and the deadline by which you must keep those is this lifetime, or else there comes a night of darkness where repentance can't happen, and you're confined to that eternal destiny. So the Book of Mormon actually teaches a very black and white situation where there is heaven or there is hell, and it's contingent upon how I respond to God's grace and whether I achieve and merit that grace. If I can have your listeners just imagine for a moment how oftentimes Christians will illustrate the gospel on a piece of paper or something, and they'll put two two cliffs, on one on both sides of the paper, and there's this great gulf in between. And they say, we're over here on one side, we've sinned, we're separated from God. God is over on the other side in His holiness. And man tries to do so many things to bridge that gulf through good works, or lots of prayer, or almsgiving for the poor, or whatever. But we can never make it because the gap is so wide. Well, Mormonism puts a stepladder down in the pit, and it has a number of commands, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the 613 commands in the Torah, but all the commands in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Bible, in the Doctrine and Covenants, in the Pearl of Great Price, including the words of wisdom like drinking a Starbucks or smoking a cigarette. You've got all these commands that represent a rung on that ladder. And as you're climbing that ladder, up on top is this bucket of, well, blood from Jesus. And that represents grace. 
And we can't do it without Jesus. We can't do it without grace. Mormonism believes in the grace of God. But in order to merit that grace, to earn that grace, I've got to get all the way to the top. And anytime I sin on the way up, I've shown that I haven't truly repented. And I fall all the way back down, and the hole becomes a heavy load, one prophet said, and I start all over again. So that it really becomes mission impossible. But yet, that's what the Book of Mormon says. That's what must be done. And it's got to be done by this lifetime. Yes, and as you mentioned, heaven, their concept of heaven is pretty unique too as well. In Mormon teaching, there's actually three levels of heaven, I believe, terrestrial, celestial, and celestial. And even in there, there's different levels as well. Can you explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, and again, that's a difference between pop Mormonism and what I would call true Mormonism. If the Book of Mormon represents true Mormonism, then it's supposed to be the most correct book ever. It doesn't contain that stuff. So the most inspired book ever doesn't reference that, in fact, mitigates against it. But let's go with the secondary view, later doctrines and those that maybe a common Mormon would embrace. And that is, you know, that the relatively wicked of the world can still get into the, you know, celestial kingdom. Still heaven, but it's the bottom of those glories, as it, it said. They, they reference a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 and uh, following. talks about degrees of glory and things like that. But they do what many do, and they rip those passages out of context to proof text this particular view. But then you've got above the celestial kingdom, you've got the terrestrial kingdom, and that's where honorable men and women go and children, but who didn't accept Mormonism, that's still heaven. So in a sense, the Christian, it's a win-win situation, and they can usually use that in dialogue with the Mormon by saying, look, I guess I don't really need Mormonism, because according to you, I'm going to heaven anyway, second highest heaven, in fact, if I'm just a good person. Whereas if the Bible is true, and there's heaven or hell, you're doomed. You're probably making a bad bet here. So it's a modified Pascalian wager for those listeners who understand what the Pascal wager is. But the highest heaven then for the Mormons is the celestial kingdom. And it likewise is you know, divided into three, one where the Father's at, the Son's at, the Holy Ghost is at. But it's really the highest of that where you have the opportunity, if you are worthy and you've obeyed the commands and you're found worthy of that life, you get the greatest of all gifts, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, and that is celestial glory. That is Godhood. That's the opportunity to start the whole process over again and have your wives and your Jesus and Lucifer and hundreds of millions of other children who then go to an earth like this and start the process all over again. And it's a constant cycle. Yes, and you mentioned baptism is important in the Mormon salvation, but also they have a practice of baptism for the dead, mm -hmm. and they justify it, quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? First, you know, what's that passage in 1 Corinthians saying regarding baptism of the dead, and does it justify the Mormon practice of being baptized for the dead? Yeah, well, first off, it's one of the most oddly interpreted passages in the whole Bible where there 
is not a lot of consensus on what it does mean. But one thing to note there, I don't have a text before me, but it says, what shall they do? It's not referring to Paul and other believers. It's talking about others in the culture. It's making a reference to other people. There's no doctrine in the New Testament. That's the only verse that is cherry-picked out to defend this view of baptism for the dead. That's uh, in order to win souls who have never heard the gospel of Mormonism, and you need to hear it, and you need to be baptized by the proper priesthood in the right way in order to be saved. And so they've got to have this place, almost like a Catholic purgatory, a place for those souls who haven't heard to then be able to hear, and faithful Mormons will go to paradise and preach to the gospel to these people, and they'll have a chance to hear. But in this lifetime, we have opportunity to do ordinances on behalf of the dead, baptism for the dead, if we're found worthy, and we get our temple card, and we can go do this stuff, so that, you know, George Washington is probably a Mormon now, and Caesar would eventually be a Mormon much to their chagrin, perhaps, but it's so important that they had to find one little ambiguous verse in the Bible to justify that place. But the Bible doesn't teach that there's a place like that. It teaches that Hebrews 10, we're appointed one life, and after this, it's judgment. For us, it's appointed one one time. That's it. And then it, it's judgment. We've had this life, and that's it. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will, you will perish. But if you believe, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. So what's required for the Christian is you are just saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God. You are saved by grace through faith that not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. Mormonism has a passage in 2 Nephi 25.23 that says you are saved by grace after all you can do. Well, how much can you do? First Nephi 3, 7 says, God gives no command that you can't keep. And if I have to keep, if I can keep all the commands, and I have to keep all the commands, then it follows that I, I can't get the grace up on top of that ladder until I've done all I could do. So it's not just, it starts, Pat, it starts with the fundamentals of faith and repentance and baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost. But repentance in Mormonism is defined, one prophet defined it as, Quote, going to the point of no return without in the thought, urge, or desire to sin again. That's perfection. And in the book where he described this, in his only book, after being a prophet and apostle for 30 years, and imagine that he combines the authorities of Paul and Moses together. Wow. He writes this one book that he leaves a legacy on. It's called The Miracle of Forgiveness, and it's the idea how to get your sins forgiven. He says that perfection is an achievable goal, and he says trying is not sufficient. So if there are if there are LDS listeners right now thinking, what does this guy know? I'm following the church and the teachings of the church. Well, what do you know right now? This was a prophet. This was an apostle. This was his only real book that he left behind. And it's what we expect that a, a prophet or an apostle, if they are existing today, would know. We don't expect them to know how to mow lawns or to fly a rocket to the moon or to, you know, fry an egg. We expect them to tell us who God is and how to get to heaven. This guy told us how to get to heaven. And either you believe him, he's the authority, or you don't. And as the Mormon knows, it's perilous to reject the teachings of the authorities.
Yes, you're listening to Evidence and Answers in our interview with Dr. Corey Miller, the president of Ratio Christi and author of a great book, Leaving Mormonism, Why Five Scholars Changed Their Minds. Now, Corey, we've been referring a lot to the Book of Mormon. What is it about, and is it a historical book? The Book of Mormon, as one Mormon scholar, Spencer Fluman, he is the, I think he's the, He's the leader of the Maxwell Institute, housed at BYU, Brigham Young University. He talks about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's inspiration as, he refers to it as inspired eclecticism. (laughs) And what he means by that is there's some stuff that's made up in there, some stuff that's 19th century, some stuff that's plagiarized, some stuff that might be unique, and there's some stuff that doesn't seem to be right. It's pretty amazing someone of that stature would refer to it as that, but that's the state of Mormon scholarship right now. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact them through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>